This is a message from the Art Intelligence Agency. Welcome to AI Agents, a program that explores the intersections of innovation and artificial intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by a collaboration between the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and the C.F. Fowler Institute at the University of Adelaide. Join our host, Tim Whiffen, in conversation with creatives, academics, and professionals in exploring how human and artificial intelligence can collaborate in divergent ideas for our future. With algorithms and equations making up the majority of our digital lives, how do we collect cultural information in pure binaries? What happens when the cultural problems like racism bleed into the machines we make? If AI and machine learning is only as good as the data it is provided, can we keep the worst sides of us out of the machine, or does the machine mirror us entirely? On this podcast, we have explored the relationship between engineering and art in the forms of AI. But when we engage with either visual culture or science, what does the humanities, the deep history of these subjects, have to contribute to our understanding? Cross-disciplinary academics are in the best positions to identify issues with any given area, and our guest today is no exception. Ramon Amaro is a lecturer in art and visual cultures of the Global South at University College London and the author of The Black Technical Object. Through Ramon's research, he has identified broad and deeply historical racial problems and offers alternative solutions to algorithmic practice. Agent Ramon Amaro joins the Art Intelligence Agency to discuss these issues and have a broader rumination on Afrofuturism. I am joined today at the Art Intelligence Agency by Agent Ramon Amaro. Thank you for speaking with me today. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Firstly, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Could you give our listeners a, a brief description of your research interests? Um, Sure. Um, I am a lecturer in Art and Visual Cultures of the Global South and UCL, History of Art Department. Um, However, my research is primarily in machine learning, um, the history of mathematics and computational reason. Far out. There's a a lot of study in there. Uh, I'm sure it's taken quite a few years uh, to, to get to that position. I'm really interested in in this idea of Afrofuturism, which I've I've read you you talk about. Could, could you give our listeners an introduction to that. Well, I mean, my my research isn't specifically within Afrofuturism per se, but I am interested in the collision um, between as what you can call black study or critical studies of race. Um, and primarily the lived experience of race and racism and how that collides with um, digital cultures. So digital types of technologies, whether that be uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, or, you know, even certain types of interfaces. And so the previous work I've done in Afrofuturism is aligned sort of with my primary aim in doing this work is to think about how can we actually surpass the impositions of racial bias. You know, what are we to do with um, this world that we're in, which, you know, I I claim in much of my work, it's not a new world, but it's a newly heightened world um, of this dependence upon technology. Um, And where do we go from here? Um, And so the interventions I've had in Afrofuturism in the past align with, with other types of 
uh, study, speculative types of study within race and black study that tries to look at different ways of navigating the world, different frameworks in which we can enact in types of world making um, and different opportunities on an individual scale to think about how we can actually create a life of value even in the midst of types of social impositions uh, such as racism or um, ethnic bias and so forth. Well, of course, as we talk about on this podcast quite a bit, uh, AI is going to be a, a large part of our future. And it's something that probably needs a little bit more consideration, especially in, um, in terms of uh, including the, the global south uh, in, in, in those progressions and, and iterations of, of AI. Um, so um, I'd love for you to explain, I guess, the, the, the problematization of AI in regards to race. Well, I think, you know, it's a complicated question because, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think first, you know, the, the relationship between, you know, technology and humans operates differently, you know, depending on, you know, cultural background, geographical location, you know, political imposition, so on and so forth, you know. So, for instance, you know, the, the Barbican exhibition that I advised on AI more than human, you know, is primarily about the different relationships in the um, in the East and West and how we reconcile technology because they articulate themselves very differently. And we see that happen in different sorts of global regions, you know, particularly in the global South. So I, I don't want to start with the assumption that AI is an imposition in the global South because it articulates itself very differently. And the reason why I, I you know, I sort of reach, I, I arrive at that point it has to do with several types of factors. And the, the first factor is, you know, and it might be, you know, it's, it's quite a controversial type of view um, that I've held throughout all of my work, which is that, you know, our current imposition with AI or our current relationship with AI is nothing new. Mm. Um, because if we actually take away the superficial definition of artificial intelligence, what we're left with is a technological tool that is highly reliant on a mathematics, which is highly reliant on an empirical process in which we use quantitative analysis to try to understand the world. Mm-hmm. And that, and if we think about it as that type of process, these types of processes have been packaged in many forms throughout our history. They've been packaged in the medical sciences. They've been packaged as, you know, we could just sort of return back to the first wave, you know, of cybernetics. You know, they've been packaged in, you know, religious contexts. They've been packaged in urban planning. What we see now is a new sophistication of these tools, which has produced new types of anxieties. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but one of the dangers is the presupposition that these anxieties are new. Right. And this, and this leads itself back to not wanting to make the assumptions about its relationship in the global South, because then that will require that our thoughts on how technology articulates themselves are homogenous types of thoughts. So for instance, you know, us in the West, we've taken a certain view of an anxiety and opposition between humans and technology. Whereas we look at, you know, at you know certain cultures in the southeast there's a different type of relationship that they have with technology and it's not so much anxiety driven and then of course we go to places in the global south and technology is seen as a different type of tool um, that might articulate itself into imposition at certain types of times so i think first you know it's very much conscious in thinking about what we're actually dealing with And if we look at the historical trajectory of even the tools that make up AI, we've actually been struggling with, you know, a type of quantified culture for, you know, for centuries now. 
mm-hmm. you know, and the development of that, you know, through mathematics and the idea of what data might mean um, in terms of projection into the future itself has been used for different types of aims depending upon geographical locations. And it's there where we actually find many of the faults, not only in how we perceive these technologies, but how we actually respond to them, mm. right? So if we see this sort of parasitic growth between, you know, us and these types of empirical or quantified processes, you know, it's in our best interest not to then assume that these, that our perception, let's say our perception in the West of how this anxiety unfolds could then lead to a type of solution that can then be imposed upon others outside of the West as the ultimate solution. And we know that, we know that logic, that's called colonialism. (laughs) <laughs> so, so in a way, it's like in our, in our, in our, so the, so the West has dominated the field of research in AI. Yes. This AI that has been dominated has led to an unfortunate side effect, which is it's replicating all the other sort of biases that we've held for a very long time in the West. And then in the West, we're doing what we do is we call, you know, we, uh, you know, we have to we have to propose this solution to the same thing that we cause. So now we're coming up with a solution to mitigate these concerns and considering that a global type of solution. And so my main concern is, is this is why I don't want to reduce, you know, racial bias into just that term, because the concern becomes much broader. Right. And in a way, in, in AI ethics research, you know, we are sort of a step behind because, you know, those in environmental and climate research, you know, they, they, they've already found this. You know, how can you come up with a global solution for climate change when most of the imposition to climate is happening within the handful of companies in one, geo, in, you know, one or two geographical locations, right? Yeah. So, so we can focus on coal burning in India, but actually the percentage of carbon output from coal burning is so low compared to Lear's corporate jets in America. So what, who are we to then go to India and say, stop burning coal? Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. So now if we put this in the context of artificial intelligence, it becomes something else. You know, it becomes something whereby the, the dominant voices within AI research and the dominant development within AI research, it must incorporate localized embedded concerns that actually where these technologies themselves, they articulate themselves differently because without incorporating those concerns, without a deep actionable analysis, which might be a mix mm. of quantified analysis as well as qualified, without an actionable analysis, then we're just imposing another type of solution on top of a problem. And, and I've said this in other spaces, but you know, I'd like to return to sort of idea, I think Homer Simpson said it on The Simpsons. Uh, there was one episode where you know he's standing with a mob and he's standing on top of a car and he has a pint in his hand. And he says, you know, um, you know, to alcohol, you know, the, uh, the cause of and solution to all of the world's problems. (laughs) (laughs) And And when I think about that, you know, when I think about AI as, you know, as we are considering it now being the cause of and a solution to all world problems, then the question of what do we do with this becomes far more complicated, uh, you know, than a simple type of removal or an adjustment. And then when I think of how we've conceived of race and human difference throughout human history, we arrive at that same type of complication. And so in a way, I almost propose the uncomfortable solution in terms of efficiency 
um, because I, I will say that the, you know, the qualitative sciences have, have become, in my view, a bit too comfortable with mirroring um, ideas of operational efficiency, um, because I believe that we need to take a step back. And I believe that we are focused, or most of us are focusing on immediate solutions to problems that have been embedded over a very long time. Right, right, right. I, I imagined in my head that it would amount to something uh, that uh, that effectively um, AI, as as we know it and see it, is effectively to westernize, as in that like so many people that contribute to the development of AI and as well as that use it are effectively um, the idea of you know weird Western educated industrialized uh, rich and um, democratic. And this is going to represent that worldview, but it's it's not even necessarily that. I, I like the compounding effect that you brought up, which is that it's very difficult to uh, quantify the different cultures that you w- want to, uh, I guess, I- I- imbue not only the research and development, but you know even just the individual systems that we have across the world. And in, in AI, that's um, a lot deeper than I have ever considered this uh, as as a as a problem. So I, I really th- I thank you for for enlightening me to that. <laughs> well, I mean, in in a way, it's you know, in in a way, you know, even you and I in this conversation are performing the problem that you know is sort of <laughs> under under the surface, right? Both you and I just attempted to describe the world, and it was impossible to do mm. without categorization and hierarchy. Yes. Yeah. You know, both and both you and I just both did it. I mean, this is part of how, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's part of our, how we make sense of the world. You know, it's part of our perceptual and sensory matrix and how that's translated into something that can either seem, you know, that seems coherent to us. Um, You know, and I, I know this is heavily, you know, genomic in this sense, but, you know, in thinking about, you know, this type of, of, a process of human perception and even human vision and how we actually collate that information and translate that into something that becomes actionable in terms of judgment, emotion, or behavior, um, or even action. Um, you know, it, it's no surprise that we have the technologies that we have today. Mm. Right. Mm. And I, I think, I think that's my first line of, of, you know, this kind of point of, you know, I'm going to call it attack. I think there's a strong word these days, but you know, there's the first line of inquiry is, is actually, you know, in a lot of my research and even, you know, in, in, in my, in my new book, what I'm trying to do is actually illuminate the fact that it's not new because this is actually how we behave. Mm -hmm. You know, someone, someone recently sort of asked the, the hive mind on social media, you know, describe AI you know, in a few words. And, you know, of course, I didn't get any likes for this, but the word I put was mirror. Oh, interesting. What is it doing that we don't do? <laughs> well, I guess to a reduced sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, and, I, and I know that's uncomfortable because, and, when, and what, I'm, what I mean to sort of go into is not sort of excuse it and not also implicate human behavior. But really one of my aims is to get us to sort of illuminate how much we have reduced the type of problem, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and if, if we think about it, in, you know, in this type of sense, it's, 
you know, is, is sort of my aim, you know, through this research is sort of illuminate that actually part of the solution is for us to think about different types of world making in which we are not reliant upon the categorization, which becomes an easy avenue for the bias to actually enter into our social and technical consciousness. Mm. So we can eliminate bias, right? You know, we can put a dam on the river. Yes. <laughs> A yes. lot of work is being put right now into putting a dam on the river. Let's just stop it. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes me anxious. I don't want the replicate. Like, who wants the replication of violence? In the, you know, you're searching for cat litter, and all of a sudden you get called a racial slur. You know, who wants that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, no one wants that. But at the same time, getting rid of the medium in which it reproduces the racialized logics does not eliminate the racialized logic. Mm. For some reason on this planet, in our human relationships throughout history, we have become reliant upon those racial category, categories, which is why I say that if it's not AI and machine learning, it'll be something else. Right. Right. Yeah. It was, it's, you know, in, with imperialism and colonialism, it was the machine gun. You know, it was the education policy. It was religion where that gets imposed. Today, it's in these sort of tools that are heavily reliant on artificial intelligence. And so my concern really isn't about today. <laughs> it's about tomorrow, because even if we solve this thing, you know, that, that we call this type of imposition, it will just return because we haven't solved it in ourselves. We haven't recognized it in ourselves. And frankly, you know, I know this is controversial as well, but how we're responding to it is exactly how it behaves, right? We, I mean, we respond algorithmically. Mm. Here, is, here is my view on the topic. Next line. Here is how <laughs> it should be solved. Next line. Encode. I don't want any conversation. I don't want any. <laughs> and then we double down on our categories, right? It's, it's in vogue right now to double down on your categories. And I challenge anyone listening to this. Go into any type of space. Talk about any topic. And see how easy it is for the double down on those categories. I'm a black middle class person from the West. That's, that's, that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we love it. I mean, I, Foucault is sort of right, of course. poking around in the grave right now. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that seems it's, it's a very difficult thing uh, to tackle. I'm not, I'm not for a minute suggesting that you should have all the solutions to this, but I mean, <laughs> you've given it significant thought. So I'd love to hear your opinions. <laughs> Well, in, in a way, it sort of comes full circle. Um, and it's what I, you know, started playing with in, you know, an essay about Afrofuturism. It's what I play with in the book in thinking about these speculative type, speculative, you know, types of algorithms that, you know, might emerge through, you know, complex neural networks is, is really what I'm thinking about is what life might be inside and outside of the category. Mm-hmm. So where, whereby one can find value within the category because there is a lot of value in it, right? Right. I love being black. I like find a lot of value in my culture as black American and an expat. I, mm. I find a lot of value in that. There are also impositions to that. Mm. So how can I live within the value of that, recognize the imposition of that, and turn both of those into something that's generative, whereby I am actually enacted to be the best version of me possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm, so 
what I what I try to investigate, you know, I, I sort of talked about the one side, which is sort of unraveling all of these logics. But, you know, what I try to investigate at that inter intersection is what are the possibilities within the collision of that chaotic space that allows one to both honor who they are, honor their identifications or their their communities at the same time, resist the imposition to that honoring and ultimately add value to themselves and the world. And it's not an easy task, right? Right, right, right. It sounds almost meditative because you're, you're like, you're, you're sort of allowing the idea of maybe ideology. I, I can't come up with a better phrasing for that. And, and then, and, and sitting with that thought, but not letting it define you in some ways. It's you, you like, you sort of notice the frame through which to view yourself and then let it pass. Absolutely. And sometimes it never passes. It, it stays with you. It okay. might, it, it might inform you, but hmm. it, it's a help. It's, it's, it's particularly generative to, to keep what informs you within view as being the, as being the totality of your perception. Yes. yes. Right. So it's almost impossible to segregate. I think is why I turned to, you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of my work is sort of leans in, in psychopathology and then to, uh, um, you know, sort of um, biology a bit. Because, you know, you even think about the human eye. It's what Fanon said about colonialism, right? You know, you're actually seeing, you know, the information that comes into your eyeball is, is overwhelming. It is yes. our brains that actually takes these fragments combines them with our both our our perception which is atemporal because sometimes that perception is past experience future projection and present right yes and it creates a narrative and a story that's why each one of us has our own perception which then enacts the senses and emotion to go to that perception so in one way it's impossible for us to segregate what's reality and not reality right yes but Yes. But in another sense, by identifying the complexity of that, you kind of have two choices. You can either ignore it and just respond and react. You could identify it and just completely, you know, completely go mad. You know, you see even Franz Fanon, he's sort of spiraling. I think if he lived longer than 36, he would have spiraled out of control because he can't reconcile this delusion that's happening in the world, right? <laughs> right. But, but in my view, you have another choice, which is you can hold the truth of your existence, which is you are already a totality of an equitable being on this earth that's imposed by categorical implications that, that attempt to convince you that you are less than what you truly are. Mm -hmm. And knowing that, what can you do within the gaps of that? And I think that that for some people, you know, like I've, I've seen a lot of artists and, you know, computational arts play with that space because it's become such a generative space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this is an interesting intersection. That's what um, we focus on on this podcast is sort of the intersection between AI and art. And, you know, that can take many forms. It may be someone who's using algorithms to produce a visual art piece or it's uh, even just people commenting on ai through heart that they've made themselves absolutely uh, so i'm i'm interested in visual cultures how what we were just talking about how does that bleed over into your, your uh, another study area of, of visual cultures 
Sure. I mean, a, a lot of this work, you know, stems from, you know, for me, you know, the work and thinking about race is is very much tied to visual aesthetics. Mm-hmm. You know, this is one of the reasons why I study Fanon, you know, given his problematics, uh, you know, which I do address in certain spaces. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I address it is because, you know, he starts off very clearly in saying, you know, that he himself becomes racialized based on nothing more than the visual perception of skin color. So for him, the color black alone brings in history, it brings in violence, it brings in stereotype, it brings in all of this imposition that then forms him as a human being. And the last thing considered is who is this individual person? And so when I take that further and start thinking about what other types of visual senses we do, you know, it becomes a very sort of routine behavior. This is sort of what I was talking about before and things that we rely on, right? Like the color red actually is not red. Red is red because we define it as red. Right. And because we define it as red, we assign meaning. I'm heavily into semiotics here. You know, we define it in yes. meaning. We know it means stop. So literally, I could be in the shower, and if there was a random red sign that flashed, I would stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's become associated. Intuitively. Now, yeah. now, let's say my past was full of trauma, that every time I saw a red sign, I got you know, arrested or put, you know, slashed or called something violent. Then I'm in the shower, a random red light flashes, and I'm triggered. So my perception of red has become bad. But let's say I'm the person who has the switch to red. Red might not be bad for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, and so when I think about this in types of other types of visual aesthetics, you know, I also think about it is where computation also comes in because, you know, many advanced research labs in AI and machine learning and, you know, neuro, advanced neural networks, adversarial networks, so on and so forth, have seen a sort of fruitful playground within the aesthetic space. I mean, we saw this in the sort of deep dream experiment, right? In the deep fakes that we see, right? It's very much reliant upon mimicry of human visual perception. And so... It's, it's been very actually fruitful for me to be in the history of art department because I can see how the logics of visuality and actually making and creating had already been infused with perceptions of the world and trying to craft those perceptions. And then I see technology, you know, particularly AI, machine learning, trying to, attempting to do the same thing. And then, of course, as humans, we do it. We just don't talk about it a lot. Right. And so when when they when they all collide, that is where I see a world of possibility, which are these artists that you're trying to identify. And I think, you know, I have sort of have this romantic view of the, you know, the maker and the artist. But, you know, many that I have partnered with or even observed and encountered, they they take a view that that which appears before me is not stable. It is something that I can manipulate, right? Yeah. I can take a rock, right? <laughs> it's yeah. not a rock, it's a canvas. <laughs> you know, it's not, they play constantly with the perception of that. I'll say, what does it mean to turn this rock into a canvas? What does it mean to turn this soil into food? You know, what does it mean? And they're constantly asking different types of, you know, of course, in this romantic view about what it means to sort of meld 
the dimensions of that which we perceive, and then they produce an output. And most people, you know, I don't say most people, I hate that term, almost 8 billion people on this planet, most would actually be a significant amount. So I would say (laughs) the the ones that I have encountered, you know, Mm. in doing so, it's also a temporal exercise because the artist, uh, you know, I know is once they produce something, it's appropriate for that space and time of its production. And by the time actually we view it as a public, it's past. They're onto something else because they've grown from it. They've absorbed it. They've learned. And, and so when I look at visual culture in that type of way, what it mm-hmm. provides for me is an opportunity to then say, what haven't we grown from? And frankly, we haven't grown from racism. Like it's, it's, it's so pedantic at this point. It's just predictable, right? There, there is no new way someone can be racist. It's just like, we've heard it all. It's just a repetition. Like we might as well make a handbook, right? Right, <laughs> like right. Of the epitaphs you can be called, you know, which is why I think, you know, sometimes I, you know, I, I do go on social media for funny things. And, you know, I do see some sort of grim, you know, funny things where it's just like, you know, you, you see someone ranting at someone else and saying some really horrible racist thing. And then you see a comment like it wasn't even original. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. There yeah. No new it's way. Kind of absurd in that sense. Yeah, go on. It just, it's, it's so absurd that actually I'm not even convinced the person saying it understands what it means. It's just like they know it's an insult. They know it's hurtful. So I'm going to throw it because I, I hate this person based on that difference. <laughs> Wow, so mirroring once again. It it sounds like um you know, I guess art is kind of this yeah this this micro scale to maybe inform some positive change in that sense. Yeah, you know, we were talking about how I guess the human uh, visual sense is acute, and we're kind of we're not taking it we're not taking everything in, and you know we might even just focus on like a single color in a, in a painting, and that may be black, and that may be the way that we view the world it may be the way that we view the um it, the view view the painting and, and what we get out of it for instance um but is there any space for ai as something that i guess we don't we don't have to uh, imbue ai with the same kind of uh, like fallibility <laughs> that yeah. humans have so like the, like a visual sense of an ai it may be able to like in maybe like a more diffuse sense take in everything about a picture i mean i know that maybe that's not what's happening now as we've discussed <laughs> um yeah. but but i guess in some sense there I, i'm, I'm going to kind of flip your narrative here is, mm-hmm. is it possible to have the uh, is it possible to have like a, a a machine learning system that 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 could you know turn turn that process upside down because it, it, by <laughs> taking in everything and not just the color black right right well i mean i mean you're sort of describing you know very loose nutshell you know where a lot of the advanced work is at the moment mm. um but you know, there is a sort of reliance in this sense on the capturing of a type of totality. I mean, that was a sort of positive cybernetic dream, right? right. If I only have data, then I can actually simulate this model. Um, you know, so even the presupposition that a machine can capture everything about a picture, I don't, to be honest, I don't even know how that's possible because, you know, neuroscience has already figured out that we don't even capture all the information yeah. about it. That's why I said red is not red. It's yeah. like, who knows what it is, right? Right. <laughs> no yeah. one 
knows exactly what it is. <laughs> you know, we have we have we have solid evidences of you know of 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 the white light waves, its hues, you know, its spectrums, how it's mm. articulated. But the question of how do we know what it is mm. is a very different type of question. So already we're sitting at the presupposition that the machine is something apart from the human, that we are in separation, we are lacking. This is why I'm in psychopathology, right? So humans can't see the full spectrum. So they would need to have a machine that sees everything. Right. But how can we possibly, <laughs> like, because if we're imbuing the machine with right. the machine, so how it's like, yeah. Yeah. And then, I'm gonna, project it. <laughs> and then I'm gonna project in the future and then be, I'm gonna I'm gonna use my present day anxiety to respond to the machine then because I've assumed that it can see everything and I'm gonna respond to it today with anxiety and imposition. So we gotta yeah. get rid of the machine. Right. Yeah. I'm already psychopathologically putting putting the human within a moment of lack. Right. Okay. Yes. So it, and in the moment of deficit. So I'm sorry. So to sort of answer your question, so really what I'm looking at is is really one of the sort of side aims of the project is to bring humans pathologically up to the presupposition, up to their own presuppositions of the machine. Mm. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, and knowing that this is possible because it just replicates our behavior, right? But knowing that this is possible, then what types of processes can we then exploit? So when I say that, you know, a lot of advanced research is, you know, thinking about in these terms, you know, I, it, at this point is sort of an older example that sort of return to like a deep dream or, you know, a, a type of complex adversarial network, which sort of fills in pixels, right? That's why they look gross to us because the machine's interpreting what might be just like our neurons interpret together. <laughs> you know, what, what the gaps of those might be. And then it shows us a representation of what it thought those gaps are, mm -hmm. you know, which is why when advanced neural networks talk to other neural networks, they come up with this odd language and it's, you know, they're coming up with different pathways mm -hmm. to this possibility. For me, for some people, I know this scares the living, whatever, fill in the blanks out of them, right? <laughs> for me, I see possibility. Okay. Yeah. Be because what, because for the first, as you know, you know, as a black person on this planet, knowing the history of how this planet has treated humans of difference, what I see is a process that exists on this planet that is operating in a space that power doesn't necessarily understand. And when I say power, I'm not just talking about, you know, big tech company. I'm talking about the everyday individual who relies upon racial imposition to feel powerful or mm. to gain power, mm. right? Because we don't understand how that machine is interpreting those pixels. Some people do, very few people do. Mm. Mm. And so what can happen in that space of possibility? Now this is, and I know it's sort of, is very abstract, but what I'm, what I'm trying to do is remove the psyche away from the away from the external categorization, placing it into a space of abstraction, which is the unknown, to free it from that which we can't free ourselves from, which is racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a space, it's a speculative space, right? So I, and I, I know it's our, you know, there may be a bit obscure, 
but it's really kind of where even, you know, the book I wrote is leaning towards this space because I think that is worth us investigating. If we're going to talk about an alienness, if we're going to talk about something that is the future that we haven't seen, then we can equally and potentially then talk about what aspects of value that we can gain from that. Right. So if I ask, if I ask a deep dream algorithm to interpret a world without racism, I wonder what answers I would get as opposed to a focus group of humans that would interpret the world without racism. And I wonder if you combine those two, how a world can be made within that abstraction. You have one that's heavily steeped in the history. You have another that is replicating that history, but also is concerned about the future. And you combine both of those together in that human technical system, you might get something else. Mm. I think a lot of a lot of this, a lot of the thoughts I'm working through are actually coming coming through the book. I, I hate to shamelessly plug it, but I'm also very much aware that academic book is, trust me, this is not a New York Times bestseller. I'd be happy if it was, but you know. So, but a lot of these sort of very obscure concepts that I'm discussing are in there, and so in a way, you know, it's a, it's a sort of celebration because it's you know it's a very complex web as you identify to try to put together, and it's an ongoing type of project. So I appreciate you giving me the space to talk through these things. Uh, of course, of course, I can see how this would be controversial in your field, because oh, absolutely. <laughs> well i mean it would it would be deeply destabilizing to i think uh, uh, things that people have put many hours of work into <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. but you, you know what's you know what's interesting you know i will say that i haven't gotten pushed back in the past i i think it's i think the thing that's interesting is you know value work is uncomfortable mm. you know we you know, to say, you know, if this guy to come in here and say, okay, actually, you know, human technical system, you know, these are things that we built out of our own, own humanity, and it might benefit us to think of it as, as within us, as opposed to just this opposition. You know, it might behoove us to think about our everyday actions and how they contribute to, um, you know, forces of power. You know, it, it might be worth thinking about since we already created these machines and continue to create them, then what can we do for a more value added life? You know, it's, it's very uncomfortable, but what I rely on is thinking about, and I, I guess I would say, you know, my response to that is that that discomfort is exactly where the value is added. Yeah. And I, and I say that because we, and we have models of this already in our culture that's able to produce value within this discomfort. And that discomfort happens in adjacent temporalities. So there are, need, there are things that we need to address immediately, like now. <laughs> Actually, yeah. yesterday. We missed it. <laughs> you, and I, you, know, you and I should go because we need to solve that. <laughs> there, are, there are other things that at the same time need to be addressed in a more durable type of way. You know, the biggest, the quickest example I can think about this is parenting, right? At the exact same millisecond, you can stop a child from running into traffic and at the same millisecond be thinking about their future of safety. <laughs> We're able to actually think in different temporalities at the same oh, time. Yes, yes. <laughs> but for somehow, when it comes to AI ethics, we've just forgotten that. Mm. We just throwing it out the toilet and we're like, look, you're either in the immediate camp or you're just one of those hoity-toity academics talking about. <laughs> right? 
Yeah, that's a. It seems like a dangerous predicament to be in, really. Yeah. And I, I say that all. I say that all are necessary. If there's any, if there's anything we can learn from the history of activism and resistance, and the history of, you know, these types of examples of value-added creation, is the recognition that people can add value within the situation that they're currently in. For some people, that's immediate pushback. For other people, it's more durable. For some, it's more intense for whatever. But if we begin to think of ourselves both as already individuals connected to a collective, which means every action that I take is connected to a collective action, right? Mm. Which means that I don't have to place judgment on the value of my resistance or another person. All I have to do is enable them to produce that value where they are. And so in a way, it's, it, I always think it's funny when you know, computer scientists or even you know, humanities folks get mad at me because it's exactly what I'm saying, which is you can stay in front of the tube as long as you, once you turn that power on, your main thought is adding value. And then you can stay in the social science lab as long as when you open that book or start typing, it's a matter of value. You see, we're on the same mission. Yes. Is not is not to disregard what you're already contributing to the world, right? My my ask is if what you're contributing to the world, my only question is, is that contribution in adding value to yourself and adding value to others, knowing that you yourself are already connected to others? That is the principal question. Everything else, I'm sorry, we all have to reconcile that, right? Because I'm not perfect. (laughs) (laughs) It's a question we all have to reconcile. But in in my days, I've seen some people. I mean, I and I actually laugh. I've laughed in other spaces not to be a jerk or, you know, not to be patronizing. But I laugh because what I think is, wow, the affect and the energy in which this person is defending mathematical symbols. I imagine how powerful they would be if they defended the climate, homelessness, you know? Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that, that's what I'm concerned about. How do we shift that as not a devaluing of work or even an agreement towards this type of work. And I, I you know, and I think the final element of that, you know, it's also what I try to show in the book. That's why I go heavily into the history of statistics. Um, because what I want to try to show is sometimes that which we defend is not what we think it is. It is not. We'll be sitting with that for a little while. I mean, yeah. it immediately makes sense, but it's an ongoing thing I find across many conversations that I've had with all kinds of um, incredibly smart people like yourself is the idea of value is so inconsistent and while it stays inconsistent amongst different like it we we go nowhere well we go somewhere well yeah we always go we meander somewhere but maybe we don't actually want to be there i mean i could just say that about a lot of different things but look it's been a fascinating conversation i'd love to finish up by asking you is there anything that you wish i had asked (laughs) what an interesting question uh anything i wish you'd ask you know what? I'm going to say no, because, okay. you know, my, my, my own work and value in this world is I'm, I'm working really hard to try to eliminate expectations that I have on people, the world and any situation and show up as my authentic true self. Mm-hmm. So it's not to say that I don't prepare, but it is to say <laughs> that I am going to say that today was a success for me because I didn't expect you to 
have any questions or certain answers. What I expected was just more for myself to show up and, and talk with you. So in that way, it's a solid no. I know no expectations. <laughs> <laughs> well, you exceeded my expectations, uh, Ramon. Thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> you, you, as, you as well. I oh, really very kind, very kind. Uh, look, I, I love the, the stoic outlook and um, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm, I'm really excited to, to put this out, but thank you for joining me to discuss these fascinating topics, yeah. Agent All Ramon right. Amaro. All right, thank you very much, Tim. If you were as impressed by Ramon's articulation of abstract issues as we were, you can read more about these topics in his book, The Black Technical Object, available through the link in the episode description, along with some of his other work. These complex ideas are really important to consider in the context of a future where algorithms continue to dominate. Thanks for listening to AI Agents. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcatcher and consider giving it a review. Do not forget that you can share this episode with other intelligent people and things, but for now, it is time to close the pod bay doors, Hal.